Hello, and welcome to The Real, the podcast for culture and entertainment media. I'm your host, Mark Olson. On today's episode... Alex Garland, creator, writer, and director of the new streaming series, Devs. Making Devs, I was making it with a group of people who I've worked with many, many times before. We're very familiar collaborators. There's a lot of shorthand to the point of almost telepathy between us now. Some of them in, in production and also on set, I've been working with for about 20 years. I mean, we go way, way back. When you're on set, you're just a bunch of colleagues just managing as best you can. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you. And now before we start talking about devs, I feel like I have to ask you, we are, of course, in the midst of a global pandemic. You wrote the script for 28 Days Later, a a movie that's about a fast-spreading virus, and you've written a number of scripts that deal with sort of dystopian themes. For you in particular, how are you processing the news? Like, what, What do you think when you're waking up every day? I'm, I'm sure I'm thinking exactly what you're thinking. <laughs> I've, I've got zero insight. I think 28 Days Later gives me absolutely no amount of expertise on this subject matter. <laughs> it's, a, it's a 20-year-old zombie movie, you know. Uh, I, I mean, it's very, very strange, isn't it? My main feeling is that in and around all of the tragedy and the disruption and the confusion is that there are things that we can take from it to do with realizing how vulnerable we are and particularly how that relates to climate change. I went for a walk with my son uh, yesterday and I was, he's 16, so he's fundamentally bored by everything I say, but I was pointing up at the sky saying, look, there are no vapor trails in the sky. This is a weird thing. This is a, a strange and amazing thing. And you know, oil is in a, in a negative cost state at the moment. It's And that's because people aren't driving. And, and there's something... I know there's all sorts of people that will feel that that's a tragedy, but I'm not one of them. I, I think there's there's got to be stuff from this that we learn about our fragility and we get some humility out of it. And uh, there's there's some things here that we hold on to, I suppose. Because the thing I couldn't help but just wonder is whether for you, it would strike you any similarities to things that you've written before, or if everything's going on, you think to yourself, like, I, I never could have written this. Like, you wouldn't have imagined things happening that are happening. Someone else did. I mean, uh, I think he's called Scott Burns, and he made a film with Soderbergh. And and uh, if, if you want to see something prescient, it's certainly a lot more prescient than 28 Days Later. It's, it's, it's actually a, a really very sophisticated bit of filmmaking, re, really quite brilliant. And I'm not surprised that lots of people have got re-turned really onto it all this time later. And now to get start started talking about devs, first, I'm going to ask you, do you have sort of a clean summation of the story? Like when you, when you try to explain to people what it's about, how do you describe it? I, I used to call it, it it's a it's a sort of sci-fi tech thriller and then beyond that it's really a young woman investigating the death of her boyfriend and the death of her boyfriend being wrapped up in some very strange work that a powerful Silicon Valley tech company is involved in and us following her journey and and thereby learning what this company is actually doing your previous work you've written novels original screenplays you've adapted screenplays you've written a video game, produced and directed feature films, but this is your first project for 
television, which you then entirely wrote and directed yourself. What was this process like? Like, did did making devs feel similar to work you've done before, or did this feel like something new? In in some respects, it felt similar, and in other respects, it felt alien. Partly in just in its scale. I mean, on a on a practical level and a budgetary level and a timing level, devs is like shooting four Ex Machinas back-to-back. Like if you took the cost of Ex Machina and the shooting schedule of Ex Machina, it's it's identical. It's, it's four of them, basically. One of the things that I found interesting working television, though, was was the freedom that came from it. If, if I say, uh, so, so the budget's the same as Ex Machina. Ex Machina, we were straining at the edges with our budget. We had four cast, essentially, in one location and in devs we have a much much larger cast with many locations and we're traveling from northern california to london to manchester and have many many sound stages and stuff like that lots of visual effects it's interesting for me the way it scales up so so you get more you you get a kind of bigger bang for your buck and ultimately in film and television freedom is usually about money and because money is time and and so I get more more I can play with in television. Given, given that I'm never going to be working at the kind of budget level of, you know, a lot of people out there, I'm, I'm always, because I make slightly weird sort of niche stuff, that means, you know, the, the budget comes with that, I guess, to an extent. So I loved, I loved, I loved the freedom it gave. It was amazing. And then the two feature films you've, you've made previously, Ex Machina and Annihilation, there's been a certain amount of struggle kind of behind the scenes, both in production and in distribution of both of those. And were all those... Or re- really, really in distribution. And were those, were those issues kind of completely alleviated in, in working on devs? Yeah, because, because basically what happened with devs was because of the group of people I was working with, when, when I handed the thing over, they said, yeah, good, thanks very much, rather than, hang on, who are we going to offload this onto? Um, so it, it was it was a very different experience in that respect. I, I think that I think that the people I w- was working with they wanted the product that I was giving them. The, the end result was the thing that they were looking for when they read the script. So so th- there was no dissonance at all. And the way I see it was that I had I sort of had total creative freedom on Ex Machina and Annihilation, but you had to fight for it constantly. And in in devs with FX, I didn't have to fight. I was with collaborators, and I, I'm not trying to be rude about the people I was working with previously. It's it's a much much more complicated story than that because people were inheriting projects that they had not started, and they were looking at this thinking we're going to lose money, and they were right. They would have lost money, or they did lose money. So so it's it's fair enough. It's just that from my point of view. One process was very bruising and the other wasn't. I've always been so struck when whenever you would be talking about Ex Machina and Annihilation, you always kind of have really bristled at the way that there's this emphasis placed on the primacy of the director in feature films. And I'm really curious if the system of television was emphasized collaboration in the way that you you like to. Did you find the sort of like the machinery of television more to your style of filmmaking? Maybe TV just doesn't bother lying about it as much. I don't know. I mean, I I, I just think uh, I I bristle b- 
because I'm kind of bored of it as a concept. I just, it, it gets wearying explaining the same thing again and again. But when you end a film or a TV show, a long list of credits follows. They're all doing something, you know. And, but, but I also think pr probably more accurately, by the time I was making Devs, I was making it with a group of people who I've worked with many, many times before. So none of us are thinking about that stuff anyway. We're, we're very familiar collaborators. There's a lot of shorthand to the point of almost telepathy between us now. Some of them in, in production and also on set. I've been working with for about 20 years. I mean, we go way, way back. So, so a lot of those questions, they're things that come later. But when you're on set, you, you're just a bunch of colleagues just managing as best you can. One of the most striking things about devs right away is simply the, the pacing of the, of the storytelling, that there's a deliberateness to it that is really striking. And was that a byproduct of simply having more time, more sort of like runway to tell your story? I, I don't think so. I think it might just be a function of my age. I'm 50 or I'm about to be 50. And a lot of the television I watched when I was younger, the dramas I, I think of are uh, um, Tinker Taylor and Smiley's People, these Alec Guinness adaptations of John le Carre novels. And um, another really, really wonderful show that Devs is very influenced by, but but it's it's not it's not very well known. It's one of those things that's fallen into history a bit, and maybe in America isn't known at all. It was called Edge of Darkness, written I think by a guy called Troy Kennedy Martin, and it's a kind of dreamlike uh, sci-fi tech thriller actually. And they are slow by modern sugar rushy standards. I get it, I get it. They're slow, and also you have to concentrate on them. Uh, in the Le Carre adaptations so much of the storytelling is done by inference that if you're emailing or half concentrating, you just won't be able to follow the story because it will be in the way someone delivers a line more than the, line, the words that are actually said. Now, the way I see it is that television and film and theatre and all of it, they're broad churches, but we don't all have to follow the same template. We don't all have to follow the same pacing. And, and I get that that won't be for all audiences, but I also know it will be for some because the broad church has a broad congregation and different people want different things. And so I, I think probably it's something to do with me being a bit older and it's also just my personal taste. I like things that maybe have a slower clock speed. That's just the way I am. So many of your projects have explored this kind of intersection between technology and nature and the natural world. What, what is it that keeps drawing you, you back to that? That's, that's where we live, isn't it? <laughs> that's kind of what's going on. Uh, we're in a natural world and we're completely fixated on technology. And I mentioned climate change at the beginning because uh, the, the two things go hand in hand. They're, they're closely related to each other. I think we need to think about these things. It, it's not It's not that it's nice to think about them or it's interesting. We need to. I said at the beginning, coronavirus shows us how fragile we are. We need to remember that. We really, really do. And But that aside, what we do is, uh, that you know, the, the nature, technology, the brutalist architecture, beautiful landscape thing, it just, it just feels to me that's representative of the state we're in. Because one of the things I found so striking about devs is the way that it felt like our world. I mean, the like the phones and the cars and the clothes, they're like what we have now. It doesn't exist in some 
dystopia. It's not even really all that much of like a near future projection. It felt very real. I always feel surprised when people, I write something and people say it's a dystopia. I think, what are you kidding? That That's here and now. I mean, there might be some sci-fi conceit at the heart of it, but 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 the, the underlying arguments are to, to just apply to us totally, I think. The thing about sci-fi is, is, is early on you have to make a decision, which is, are you going to are you going to project this into the future? And are you going to redesign cars and coffee mugs and doors and, and everything? The thing I, I felt was that I wanted, I wanted devs to be about us. So not to do that displacement technique that something like Star Trek can do, where it can address an issue to do with politics or political issues and, and do it in a, as a sort of metaphor or, or an analogy, really just to be explicit about it and because some of the ideas within it are so strange the quantum mechanics and the determinism and they're so counterintuitive that I felt that if I pushed it into the future it would be like a balloon a helium balloon that had just slipped out of one's grasp and it would it would fly away to the clouds and just get increasingly meaningless so so it needed to be here and now in that respect. Because the story of the show begins as being simply about a, a young woman trying to find out how her boyfriend dies. And then it pushes forward into, as you were saying, these very what feel like high level abstract concepts about determinism versus free will, something called the many worlds theory, quantum computing. Is it a challenge to keep the storytelling feeling human, to, to keep the personal and emotional aspects of the storytelling there as you're exploring these sort of like very heady, abstract ideas? I don't know if challenging is the right word. I, I mean, it, it will be, it will work for some people and not work for others. All, all I can say is that it's, it's not a challenge because that's the story I want to tell in the way I want to tell it. So it's more like a decision than a challenge. I, th I think that what what ends up happening is that some of the some of the decisions will then challenge other people. So, so for example, if you take Lily, the protagonist, uh, one of the things I've often noticed in stories is that someone will get bereaved, and three scenes later they'll be laughing or uh, acting as if this thing hasn't happened. And I, I wanted to tell a story about bereavement not just with her, actually, but also with Forrest, and to show something about the long shadow it casts and the nature of the shadow it casts and the way it hollows you out. So for me, putting that stuff into the story isn't a challenge. What then happens is it does challenge other people because people don't expect bereavement from their protagonists in a funny way. They, they want, or, or some of them want, want something else. They want that they want them to be laughing four scenes later or, you know, pissing about or whatever, whatever the thing happens to be. The way I see it is that it's not, maybe it's not my challenge, it's the viewer's challenge, and then some people will either reject it or accept it. I know, especially in writing devs, were you considering the audience much? Like, do you, do you think about how your, your work is going to be playing to an audience? I don't think about how it will be playing to a broad audience because I know it will never reach it. That's been true with pretty much everything I've ever done. I, I know I work in a in a small part of the Venn diagram. I, I get that. And it does doesn't doesn't bother me. But then the audience that is in that section of the Venn diagram, I do think about them a lot, yeah. Because what I'm looking for is is a kind of patient, curious viewer. And then I want to reward that curiosity and reward that patience. 
and show them things, I hope, or the collective that make the thing, show them things that are beautiful and strange and intriguing and provocative in a reflective way. So, so the reflection seems to me to be a product of patience and curiosity. Because there's a scene in episode six of the series where the main character of Lily, played by Sonia Mizuno, sits down at a, at a kitchen table, basically, to talk to the character of Katie, played by Alison Pill. And they talk about some of the headiest, most abstract ideas of the series. And it is just riveting. There's something so exciting about this exchange of ideas in that, that moment. Can you talk a little bit about writing and executing a scene like that? It's slightly zen, the state you get into. So what's required of the actors and required of the crew is a very, very strange state. Very often a shot, a take might last a minute and a half, or it could last less than that before you're saying, okay, cut, and then going again. These were like 12-minute take after 12-minute take. So the degree of focus in the actors and the degree of focus of Rob, who's operating the camera, or Sam, the grip, who's pushing very, very gently moving the camera, and everyone in this state of absolute silence. And and as soon as you're done with that one, you take a breath and then you do it again and you do it again. It's a really odd way to spend a day. I think it's very challenging, but it's very pure. There's something very pure about it. It's very distilled. You stop thinking about things like how to choreograph the person walking through the door with the person picking up the glass of water. And it's really just about faces and subtlety and nuance and and a very, very correct frame. And now at that point in the story, you're really actually thinking that's the moment when Lily is going to be meeting and talking to the character of Forrest, the tech wizard played by Nick Offerman. And I just have to ask why you liked the idea of the little bit of like a misdirect there where people thought that she was going to be talking to Forrest, but she actually gets all the information from Katie, this other character. Because there's this phrase that just trips off the tongue for people, which is tech genius. And there's a line actually earlier in the episode where someone talks about Forrest and says, he's not a genius, he's an entrepreneur. And, and, the way we are constantly trying to confer genius onto these people, and actually often they're trying to take it for themselves as well. So, so it's a sort of mutually agreed state. But it's just very often wrong, isn't it? And it seemed to me strange that that was a subversion to say, but, but it is a subversion because, because of what we, we tend to expect. I, I think very often with characters in stories, I'm trying to, I know I'm working within a familiar genre and, and all sorts of things come with the genre and people arrive at stories with expectations. I think usually probably quite subtle or maybe almost invisible ways. I'm constantly trying to mess with that or subvert it or undermine it. And, and th- that seemed a very straightforward one to me. There's no evidence given anywhere in the series that he's a genius. Even after people say very explicitly he's not a genius in the TV show, I then find myself people talking to people who say, oh yeah, the tech genius, Forrest. And I'm thinking, how, how clearly do you need to spell it out? <laughs> it's, it's interesting. We, it's, I guess it's just something we really want to believe, uh, maybe. And then I, I've seen in another interview where you said that episodes seven and eight of the series for for you felt like the best work you've 
ever been a part of. And I wanted to ask you, how so? And what, and what, what was it about those, those two episodes, which really form a movie unto themselves, that feels to you so, so striking within your own body of work? I, th- I think partly because I couldn't have done them. They called on every bit of knowledge of my working life prior to, to be able to make them function. And a lot of them were shot in this strange intuitive state that the crew and I had fallen into where we were talking about things less and less and just executing them more and more and so much of so much of those episodes are done on instinct so there's a moment in the poem uh, there's there's a poem a Philip Larkin poem that's read in episode 7 which talks about a small unfocused blur just in the edge of vision and forest is at that moment unfocused and defocused and comes into focus and and that was not planned it was it was it was in the moment of shooting it having just heard Stephen McKinley Henderson read the poem and then shooting the replies and and thinking let's do that and and this and and so many examples of that I want to make it very clear not not just coming from me coming from everybody so it was very rewarding it was very intuitive it was very organic and at the end of it it wasn't just chaotic mess it cut together into what I think is what it was intended to be. And so that this, as a filmmaker, what else are you going to ask for, really? And I want to make sure to ask you a little bit about just the casting of the project. The lead actress, Sonoya Mizuno, she's appeared in both Ex Machina and Annihilation, but in much different and smaller roles that sort of drew on her background as a dancer. What is it that draws you back to her as a performer? And then what, did, what made you see so much more in her for devs? Because the, the, her performance is just incredible in the series and it's something I don't think she's ever really had the opportunity to do before. Well, it, it's partly I I like working with the same people again in front of and behind the camera and Sonoya is absolutely one of them. But there's many actors I've worked with many times and there, there's a lot you get out of it. And, it. and it's again, it's part of the telepathy. I remember Rob Hardy saying to me that Sonoya walks at exactly the speed he wants to move a camera. He, he feels like they're just the two of them are kind of in sync with each other in in that way. But with her, it actually it was to do with the grief that I wanted Lily to inhabit and knowing that there is a, this stillness that that she can do. And it's like a clock speed, I think, partly. It, it's a clock speed that she can do. I think often with actors, it's very difficult for them to avoid wanting to be liked. Not with all actors, but with many actors. And possibly because it's why they got into the job in the first place, you know? And so it's deep in them. She doesn't have that. She doesn't care about that. And and so the inhabiting of that state of grief, I just felt very sure was something she could do. There's nothing sort of solicitous in the performance. That's the way I see it. And now both Nick Offerman and Alison Pill, they, they, their performances also, there's just something so unexpected about them. I mean, they they both have, there's something that's both very still and very sort of fearsome and a bit ferocious in those performances. Do you feel like you saw something in them that hadn't been drawn out of them before? Or what kind of, what made you want to cast the two of them in those roles? I think with Alison, I had seen it before. It, it was something I, I felt completely sure she could do. She's a really, really very, very talented actor. She's also, I'm using, I'm using the word sort of advisedly, she's ferociously intelligent. 
her natural and true intelligence with that ability just felt like a completely natural fit. I'd seen her in a play in New York. And as I was watching it, I was thinking, Christ, if she doesn't do it, we're screwed. And with Nick, the, the thing with Nick was we met and we talked and I liked him very much. And I, he, he's, he's also very intelligent in a different way. He's very soulful. He, he's, he's, he's like an incredibly human person, but human in a thoughtful way. It's, it, he's, he's a fascinating guy, actually. But I didn't know much about him beforehand. The thing that might seem like a bit of countercasting because I'd seen this guy in Parks and Rec, but I had rather sort of brilliantly and intuitively seen something that I could exploit. None of that happened because I, I wasn't familiar. And, and I, I was actually very surprised when we were shooting in America to discover how famous he was. I had no idea how famous he was. Uh, I remember sitting in a restaurant with him and his, his back was to the window and he had a bald head and a big beard because he was wearing a wig in the show. And as we were sitting there, someone walked past and went, hey, Nick Offerman. And I thought, what? How did you recognize this guy from behind with a bald head and a long beard? And he's so famous that you, you, you saw through all of that. So it might seem like a rather clever bit of casting, but it wasn't. I, I just met him. I liked him. I could, I, I could see him playing scenes, these particular scenes opposite Sonora. And I thought they've got such different energies and it's such an interesting combination. That that was it. That was really it. The actor Jin Ha, who plays uh, Lily's ex-boyfriend of Jamie, his background is in musical theater. I like his performance so much. He he did a great audition. I mean, there's two things. One is most people agree on good acting. You know, it's, it's, it's it's not a secret. Nobody thinks Philip Seymour Hoffman is a bad actor. I've, I've never met anyone who thought that. So, so partly it's quite easy to spot, I think. But also there's a real pleasure in, in finding someone who's good and giving them, say, right, okay, go for it. You're, you're great, go for it. And, and giving them a huge part. It's, it, that, that's a nice thing to do. One of the, the few parts of my job that I truly, truly hate is, is being in castings and meeting actors who have so much sort of earnestness in them. They've got so much hope. I think actors get a really bad rep in a lot of ways. Most of them want to try hard so much. They want to do a project they care about. They're so earnest and serious about it. And as a director, there is this part of the process. What you have to do is is say to these these really sort of lovely people, I'm sorry it's not going to work out. And I, I, I hate that. So the, the flip side of that is someone someone like Jin Ha comes in, does a couple of auditions, absolutely nails it, and you say, great, go for it. There's a visual idea that sort of is throughout the series. There are these trees around the campus of the, the tech company that have these very unusual kind of halo lights around them, and it's actually become kind of a defining image of the series. It's used in a lot of the advertising for it, and... and when you have an idea like that or an image like that appears in the production, do you know how important it's going to be at the time? No, no, you, you, you don't. And it, it's, it's one of the, half of it is completely intentional and half of it is getting an instinct about knowing what to exploit or recognizing the happy accident for what it is. And I mean, look, I'm just plugging that, pulling those, statistics out of the air. I don't know if it's 50-50. But what I do know is that happy accidents and and seeing something and unexpected and, and exploiting it are a big part of filmmaking. 
The halo lights were an idea from Lee, the gaffer, who's the guy in charge of lighting. And then once we were there, seeing them in the night, on the day, on or, or on the evening, and seeing how magical and strange they looked, which was actually exactly what he said they were going to look like, uh, to be fair to him. Then you think, hang on a minute, here we've got this show with, with partly a scientific, partly a philosophical and partly a theological argument running underneath it. And Lee's just given us a bunch of halos. So so let's stick an actor under one of them quick. You know, it's, it's like that. <laughs> now, the last thing I, I want to ask you is just, you've said that your next project will not be science fiction. And do you feel like you've kind of reached the end of the line of that? Do you think that with the work you've done on Ex Machina, Annihilation, and now Devs, does that feel like some kind of a complete statement to you? No, it, it, I, I'm completely unstrategic. An idea occurs to me, I think, oh, that's an interesting idea, and then I work on it. That's all there is to it. it so I, I could never work in sci-fi again. I could only work in sci-fi. I, I don't know in, in many respects. I don't care. It's, it's just the idea that occurs to me at that moment or over, over that period. That's all it is. And the show is Devs. Alex Garland, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the questions. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to our producer, Paige Heimson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heflin. Subscribe to The Real on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. You can also visit us at latimes.com forward slash The Real. 